The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we look at God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are indeed prepared to study God's Word. We do that through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through confession of sin, which is simply acknowledging or admitting our sin in the privacy of our priesthood to God the Father, we are instantly restored to fellowship with God. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit who is our teacher and the one who helps us to understand his word and see how it applies in our lives. And thus we are prepared to study God's word. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have as a body of believers to gather together to have fellowship around the teaching of your word, for this is true fellowship. And it is your word that is the power of our lives. It gives us that which we need to renovate our thinking under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we can uh, come to a greater understanding of how your grace is manifest in our lives and the importance of understanding the truth precisely and accurately. For only then will it fulfill its function as being that which frees us from the slavery of sin, the slavery of legalism, and only then will we have uh, the true freedom that we have, experience the true freedom which we have as ours, part of our uh, spiritual assets in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And I want to start with a brief review of what we covered last week because we had some problems with the uh, microphone and tape mechanism, and that's an important verse to cover, and it covers some important concepts. Last week we went over the first six verses again, and the thrust of the first six verses is to talk about the believer's freedom in Christ. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It's this first verse functions as sort of a hinge verse, a transition verse, from Paul's exposition of slavery to the law in the previous chapters to the application of all that he has said in the first four chapters of the epistle. As so often is the case with Paul, he begins his epistles with a very rigorous, logical argument of the doctrine that's involved, and then he comes at the last part of the epistle to really punch it home in terms of application. And so having discussed the importance of justification by faith alone, and justification means that we are justified not on the basis of anything that we have done. It's not on the basis of our morality. It's not on the basis of our going to church. It's not on the basis of giving to the church. It's not on the basis of anything that we do that God blesses us or God justifies us. We're justified at salvation because at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then when he looks at that perfect righteousness of Christ, he declares us to be justified, not because of something we have of our own possession, but because of what of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And that there then lays the basis, the foundation for the spiritual life. And just as salvation is based upon grace, it's a free gift of God given to the believer. Nothing we do to earn it or deserve it. The same is true of the spiritual life. And that gives us freedom because the problem that we have as Christians is we have a tendency, or Christianity as a whole has had a tendency to define the spiritual life in terms of morality. And the Christian way of life in this church age, as we're going to see in Galatians chapter 5 and a number of other passages, is uniquely based upon the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And even though there are a lot of groups that give lip service to concepts like grace and faith and even the Holy Spirit, these groups do not really think through what these concepts mean. So just because somebody uses the terminology doesn't mean they really understand the doctrine or the concepts. And as so often the case, the battlefield is words. Satan has been a master at twisting words and twisting their meaning. And you'll find people who will talk about earning grace, which is an oxymoron at, at best. And how can you earn that which is free? And what the Scriptures tell us is that once you get involved in legalism, it either destroys your ability to be saved if you're not saved and you're trying to be saved by faith plus anything. If at that moment that you hear the gospel and you desire to be saved, if you add anything to faith, faith plus anything, we'll put a question mark there and you can fill in the blank with whatever your background supplies, that if you think justification is based on faith plus anything, then that completely nullifies your faith and it's a work system. I don't care how much faith you have, if it's 99% faith and 1% works, then that 1% works destroys the 99% faith. And so there can be no salvation to the person who never expresses faith alone in Christ alone. Now, I know that there are a lot of groups out there that we're all familiar with who teach a faith plus system, faith plus baptism, faith plus baptism into their denomination, faith plus the followings of following certain rituals. But it's amazing how many people, because of the uh, ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, at the point of gospel hearing, don't hear that. I mean, I've talked to many people in these denominations who don't under, really understand the theology of their denomination. Now, that's not to say that there aren't a, quite a few others who do understand the theology of their denomination and are espousing works and the need for works, but I'm always surprised by the number that never really understand that it's not faith alone in Christ alone. So, just because somebody's involved in a legalistic, ritualistic denomination doesn't mean necessarily that they're not saved. They just may not understand their denominational teaching and they may, in fact, have understood grace at the point of gospel hearing and just gotten everything fuzzy and muddled up afterward. Scripture teaches that salvation is faith alone in Christ alone because Christ alone has performed the work that is meritorious. Therefore, faith has no merit in itself. The merit is all in the object Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice on the cross. So Paul is now going to develop the idea and the importance of freedom in the Christian life. This is bracketed in terms of the organization of his thought here. We always want to make sure we understand the flow of thought here. It's bracketed by 5.1, which states it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And then in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So freedom is the main idea here, the freedom that we have in Christ because of all the spiritual assets which we have as part of our position in Christ. The moment of salvation in Christ, we are baptized, that is identified, that's the meaning of baptism. Just because you see the word baptism doesn't mean water is involved. In fact, of the eight baptisms in Scripture... Water is not involved in most of them. Baptism means identification, and through the Holy Spirit we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And we are placed in union with Christ so that we have a new eternal relationship with Him. And as part of that relationship, we have 40 distinct positional realities. 
These are blessings that God gives us at the moment of salvation. They're organized differently by different people. Somebody sent me a pamphlet recently that listed, I think, 260 things God does for you at the moment of salvation. And if you look, the way this developed originally, historically, I think Lewis Ferry Chafer in his systematic theology listed 33 things that God did for us at the moment of salvation. And then others came along and added to that. But he breaks things down categorically so that you have one, one of the things uh, that God does for you at the moment of salvation. One category, one line item is the seven ministries of God the Holy Spirit. So if you look at the way Lewis Berry Chaper organized it, there's categories and subcategories. And if you break everything out into line items, you could have 250, 300 different, different things. But the reality is that God has provided us with all of these assets as part of our positional reality. They are ours. They are owned by us from the moment of salvation on. And the issue in the spiritual life is, are you going to live in light of what took place at salvation in terms of your identification with Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, and begin to learn all that God has done for you and for me at the moment of salvation, and begin to live that out in your life so that you can experience the quality of life and the happiness in life and the stability in life that God has given us from the moment of salvation. And our freedom is part of that, those positional realities that Christ provided for us. So Paul then talks in verses 2 through 4, he gives the uh, <coughs> illustration or deals with the problem of circumcision. Circumcision stands as one example, but it represents any kind of legal or moral obedience that man trying to do something on his own will gain the uh, blessing and pleasure or approbation of God. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And this, we're dealing with the bottom circle here. If you are trying to gain God's approbation through morality, through good works, through ritual, through legal obedience, the circumcision, trying to obey the Mosaic law, then that you are under the control of the sin nature and you're in carnality. Now, it's not sin, it's human good, but you have rejected God's grace provision. So what Paul is saying is at the moment you start operating on legalism, any realm of legalism, it, you're no longer operating on the basis of your eternal positional realities. You are operating out here on the basis of your own goodness, your own efforts, your own morality, and therefore Christ is no longer of any value or benefit to you in your spiritual life. Verse 3, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You can't chop the law if you've got to take it as a whole in its entirety. If you're going to emphasize one minor commandment, you must you obligate yourself to the entire law. And then verse 4, You have been severed from Christ. This does not mean loss of salvation, but that you are... It's a reiteration of the same idea that's in verse 2, is Christ is no longer of benefit to you. You're cutting yourself off from the source of power in the spiritual life. You're cutting yourself off from the justification benefits which you received at the moment of salvation. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. And there we saw that that was used as a participle indicating process, and that's what's true. Whenever you're in a work system, you are continually trying to get God's approval. Whereas what the spirit, what Christianity teaches is that salvation takes place at a point in time. At the instant you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at that moment in time, you enter into a relationship with God the Father. This is justification. It is not a process. It is a one-time event that takes place in a nanosecond. And at that point, you enter into a relationship, and the next issue is your spiritual life or the doctrine of of, uh, sanctification. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. Whenever you emphasize works, we've talked about the lordship salvation controversy. There are those who front-load the gospel with works and those who back-load the gospel with works. Those who backload the gospel with works use a very subtle argument that if you have true saving faith, then then that will be evidenced in works. And if those works aren't there, 
according to whatever standard they have, then you didn't have true saving faith. So the only way you can know if you're saved is if you have these good works. It's a process. Your whole life, you never know for sure in that system if you have eternal life. In any kind of work system, you never know for sure if you're going to go to heaven. So Paul says that if you're seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen. That is, you have departed. You are off course from grace. You're no longer operating on grace. So from this we learn that the spiritual life is based upon grace, not on law. Then he contrasts those who are maturing, advancing in the spiritual life. And he says, for we, and the New American Standard translates that through the Spirit, when it is a dative of means and should be translated by means of the Spirit. When you look at it in the original language, it becomes very clear that the contrast is between those who are being justified by means of the law, that's a dative case for that noun, for law, for namas. And the contrast is for we by means of the Spirit. So not only do you have a contrast, one category, one side of the operation is on the basis of law. The other side is grace. The side that's operating on grace is also operating by means of the Holy Spirit. For we, by means of the Holy Spirit... And then you have the phrase, from the source of faith, ek pisteos, from the source of faith. So, over here it's works. We see that from other passages in Galatians. So, these are the two spheres of operation, one or the other. For we, by means of the Spirit, from the source of faith, that is the exercise of the faith rest drill, mixing faith with the promises of God, mixing faith with our understanding of doctrine, are waiting for the hope, this is future, for the hope of righteousness. And hope is elpis, it is confident expectation, it is, in essence, it's tantamount to a personal sense of our eternal destiny. So what we see here is that from the source of faith, which is the faith rest drill, this stands for the first basic stress busters, from confession to the filling of the Holy Spirit, Faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. Those are the basic uh, stress busters that characterize the young baby believer. And then you have your swing stress buster, which takes you through adolescence, and that is personal sense of eternal destiny. The first is faith. Represented first stage is represented by faith. The second stage is represented by hope as we begin to learn that we have an eternal destiny, that every decision we make today affects our spiritual life and has an impact on our eternal destiny. Faith, hope, and then the final categories of the, of the stress busters, with all the stress busters, all ten, basically represent the spiritual skills necessary to advance to spiritual maturity. This begins with personal love for God, then impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. This is the uh, love triplex, and it culminates when we master these spiritual skills, then and only then will we experience to the fullest the inner happiness that God has for us. Now, that's not to say that even at a at an immature stage of spiritual childhood that we can't experience immature happiness, I mean, uh, inner happiness or personal love for God or impersonal love for mankind, but that these aren't mastered until we have a certain amount of doctrine in our soul. Because you can't love God if you don't know God, and you can't know God unless you've taken the time to listen to him, His Word and to learn how He has revealed Himself to us. And these are advanced skills in the spiritual life. I, I heard someone the other day on the television making a point about loving our brother, that we ought to uh, be forgiving of those who have uh, personal faults or morality faults and peccadilloes, and that, that that's a sample of loving your neighbor as yourself. And uh, I won't go into the context and everything, but, but he was trying to apply that not only to believers but to everybody and making it sound as if it was something that everybody ought to be capable of doing. And this is a gross misunderstanding because it is very, very difficult to apply the whole doctrine of impersonal love for mankind. That is very difficult 
and you have to reach a certain level of spiritual maturity, and you have to understand a certain amount of things spiritually, and you have to have a certain frame of reference really locked down in the thinking of your soul before you begin to realize what is involved in impersonal love for all mankind. It's very difficult. It's easy for us to love people who are kind to us. It's easy for us to treat people well who treat us well. But where impersonal love really comes into play is when we have to deal with people who hurt us, who harm us, who say things about us that hurt us deeply, when we run into people who just grate on our nerves and we don't want to have anything to do with them, that's when impersonal love comes to play. And it's very hard to get past self in those situations. And the only way we can get beyond the self-absorption of our own hurt, our own pain, our own rejection, whatever it may be, is because we are focused on doctrine and we understand that uh, God is in control and that we are able to then throw this situation on God. So these are advanced spiritual skills, the advanced uh, stress busters, and this is all summarized by Paul under the term love. So we saw last week that he says, for by means of the Spirit, on, from the source of faith, that is the faith rest drill, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. That means we've, we've reached spiritual adolescence and we know that the future is going to hold for us in glorification. We are saved from the presence of sin. We won't have a sin nature. We will have experientially and positionally the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. That is, that would involve both religious observance and non-religious observance. The presence or absence of works is not the issue. The issue is faith, that is, the faith rest drill working through, indicate the participle is used, indicating process and goal, working through love. This is the essence of the mature spiritual life, and any believer who's been a believer, I would say, for two or three years, if they're truly positive to doctrine and have spent some time studying God's Word as they should, making it a priority in their life, they should advance to a certain level of spiritual maturity where they are operating in this in this realm. This is not something that you say, wow, maybe in 10 or 15 years, if I'm pretty diligent, I might get there. Uh, Paul, as his, in his comments to the Corinthians, and it's only been about three years since he saw them, expected them to have reached a level of spiritual maturity. And yet they're not there, so he is very... Uh, he, he <clears throat> disciplines and rebukes them and confronts them with the, that failure. So that gives us a sense that spiritual maturity is not necessarily a lifelong process, but it is for us to get to, into this realm of spiritual adulthood, and it is only then that we really begin to experience what life is all about. It's the same way in, in physical and emotional life, in regular everyday life. We want to get past childhood. Remember what it was like when you were a kid? I know it's hard for some of you to remember back that far. But you wanted to be treated like an adult. You wanted to have the privileges of an adult. Of an adult. You wanted to have the, all these, be able to do all the things of an adult. And you knew that childhood was just training ground to get you to adulthood, but where life really began was when you became an adult. And you got to do what you wanted to do. At least that's the way you thought about it as a kid. That's the same thing's true in the spiritual life. The spiritual life really begins when you enter this phase of spiritual adulthood, when you've advanced beyond spiritual childhood. The trouble with most Christians is we're locked into this age, this era, age of our spiritual life, and we don't want to get out of spiritual childhood. We just we, we take forever trying to figure out how to use a faith rest drill, and we don't quite get the point that if I'm going to mix faith with promises, I ought to know promises and I only know two promises. Well, if you only know two promises, you can't go very far with faith rest drill. So how do you expect to get out of spiritual childhood? Well, Rodmacher, who's now the Chancellor of Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary, and one of the few people around who really seems to have a, a handle on this, said the problem with the evangelical church in America is it's the largest nursery in the world. The vision that most pastors and most congregations have of what constitutes a spiritual adult is, in the terms of Scripture, kindergarten. 
You go to church week after week after week in most congregations and you don't get the kind of content from the pulpit that will get you beyond spiritual pre-K or kindergarten. Because we just don't, and somebody comes along and teaches second grade level material and everybody oohs and ahs and says that's too heavy for us. You need, to be, you need to go teach in a seminary somewhere. Don't give us all this heavy material. So everybody's satisfied with crying and messing up their spiritual diapers all the time and never getting very far because they have such a low ceiling of expectation for the spiritual life. And so Paul is challenging them that not only do they need to get away from legalism, but they need to advance spiritually. And that brings us to a passage for this morning in Galatians 5-7, where Paul says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, the point that Paul is making in the next six verses, from 7 down through 12, is that legalism destroys the spiritual life. Legalism destroys the spiritual life. In verses 7 through 10, he's going to talk about how legalism hinders and reverses spiritual life. And in verses 11 and 12, he's going to show how legalism removes the offense of the cross. And so it's obviously false. So let's begin in verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you? From obeying the truth. And the main verb that we have here is the Greek word treko. Looks like this in, in the Greek T R E C H O. And it is in the imperfect active indicative. Now, why is that important? We always learn little wonderful things about what the author is saying when we break the verbs down. It's imperfect tense. There are two past tense past action tenses in the Greek. There's the imperfect tense and the aorist tense. The imperfect tense is comparable to the present tense. Present tense indicates continual action in present time. The imperfect tense emphasizes continuous action in past time. Continuous action in past time. So what this means is that the Galatian believers were running well in past time. They were running as a metaphor for the spiritual life. They were advancing well. They were growing spiritually. They were doing everything they were supposed to. How do we know this? If you look back at Galatians 3.3, Paul asks the question, Are you so foolish, having begun by means of the Spirit? Are you now being perfected? And that word should be translated matured, completed. Are you now being matured or completed by means of the flesh? And the answer, of course, would be, that they are, and that this is wrong to try to uh, advance spiritually by means of the flesh. Now, the flesh is a technical term in Paul's theology for the sin nature. This is where you do theology. You see, theology is when you take Scripture, and you compare Scripture with Scripture, and you begin to put them together logically. It's wrong to operate on autonomous logic, where our starting point is outside of Scripture and human experience or human reason, But God is logical. Remember the term logic comes from the Greek word logos. And Jesus Christ is said to be the logos of God. And that tells us something about the basic nature of God, that he is rational and logical. And man was created to be rational and logical, not to operate on rationalism, but to operate on the authority of God's word and on the revelation of God and to build our understanding of reality through the use of logic from the starting point of Scripture. So let's see how this works. You have a, a uh, statement over in Galatians 3.3 that condemns the Galatian believers for trying to be matured through the flesh, which is a sin nature. Now, you get over here to Galatians chapter 5, and you realize that the tool that they're using to be matured is the law, circumcision. Now, what can you do as a result of these two premises? What kind of a conclusion can you 
derived from that. This is your common commonality between the two. That you can conclude from this that the operation of or the application of the law is from the source of the sin nature. These two then are comparable. And that's a real surprise for a lot of people because they can't understand how morality as well as immorality can be just as much a product of the sin nature. See, most people don't think, as we have been taught, that the sin nature produces not only good, not only evil, not only sin, but it also produces good. It does many good things. And remember, Satan, who is the uh, archenemy of God and is the prince of darkness and the originator of evil and sin in the universe, masquerades as an angel of light and his, and his servants as ministers of righteousness. So that Satan's greatest tool is to deceive people through morality and religion. I remember some, I won't say how many years ago, because it just scares me when I realize how long ago it was, but when uh, a movie came out called The Exorcist. Now, some of you remember that, so we immediately date ourselves. When that first came out, I think it was around spring break, or maybe it was Christmas break, and my roommate and I, my roommate and I both grew up in a doctrinal church, and we were both uh, believers and had a pretty good divine viewpoint of things. And uh, we went to see that. He just called me up one afternoon and said, Hey, want to go see a scary movie? Neither one of us knew anything about the movie. And we sat there and we had more fun watching all the people in the auditorium fidget, in the theater fidget and, and scared. And they had no comprehension, no frame of reference for understanding demonism or exorcism or demon possession or anything like that. And... Uh, uh, they were just all caught up with the religiosity and everything else. And we said to ourselves afterwards, we said, isn't it sad? Because most people will see this and they'll go away thinking that the way Satan operates is through this kind of insidious evil. And yet the way Satan operates 90% of the time is through good works. See, Satan wants to control and bring pre peace and stability to his domain. Scripture says he is the prince and the power and of the air. He is the God of this age. And Satan's goal is to bring harmony and peace and stability to human history to demonstrate to God that he can control the world and the human race on his terms and bring everything to perfect fruition. So the existence of crime the existence of war, the existence of violence, the existence of all of these horrible things that destroy relationships and bring about killing and murder and everything, everything else that goes along with it, all of that is just a testimony to Satan's inability to bring about his goal. And we don't think of it that way. And so he is behind all morality and all religion to try to get man to think that he can bring about uh, perfection and happiness and a utopic situation in this life. So Paul is attacking this and the, the whole concept of religion and morality in this section and we see that, that the sin nature and law and legal, legalism are tied together so that legalism is a product of the sin nature. Now, Paul uses this word treco. He says you were running. That means you were advancing well and he, it's an imperfect active indicative. The imperfect tense says that the Galatian believers were running well in the past, but no longer so, not in the present. Active voice, the subject performs the action. So this means that it was their volition, their decision to run well. Consequently, it was their decision, their responsibility to not run well. They can't say, well, it's their fault. It's the teacher's fault. This, these Judaizers came into town. They started teaching us all this false doctrine. We just didn't know any better. Paul, through the use of the active voice, completely puts the blame on them that just because somebody teaches something stupid and something false doesn't mean you have to go along with it. 
If you follow false teaching, if you follow heresy, if you follow a work system, it's your fault because you've made the decision to do so. You may not have known an alternative. That is not the issue. You see, we always look in our society for some way to to excuse people of their wrong behavior. But what the Scripture says is whether you know it's wrong or not, you wanted to do it, and you did it, and therefore you are responsible and you are to be held accountable no matter what. There's no such thing as a as a ignorance excuse. There's no such thing as a uh, uh, mental illness excuse or an insanity excuse. You want to do it, you do it, therefore you are accountable 100%. And so they wanted, they were running well, and that was their volition, but then they went negative, and somebody hindered them from obeying the truth. And Paul is asking that question. Now, this is a very important metaphor, and I want to stop and take a couple of minutes to look at the running metaphor of Scripture, the race metaphor. Paul says that you were running well, you were advancing well. This is um, not uncommon for Paul to use a running metaphor. He uses a lot of different metaphors in Scripture, and athletic metaphors are common. I want you to hold your place here and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Here he compares the spiritual life to a race. Now, the spiritual life is a race, it has a course. And we have developed this particular overhead to chart out the course of the spiritual life. Talk about the plan of God in three phases. Phase one is salvation, that's represented by the cross here. Phase three is glorification, when we are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, at which time we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. And the point of that evaluation is not to determine our presence in heaven, but our position in heaven. That's covered in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ. Now, phase 2 is this section of the diagram in between. It's like a flow chart. You start here at salvation, and as we've seen in our study of James on Wednesday night, we'll encounter various tests of faith, according to the translation, But there we see that that is a use of faith in terms of doctrine. It's both our ability to trust God and trusting Him for what we know and the doctrine that's in our soul and applying it to those life situations. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we have doctrine in our soul and we respond in positive volition to those tests, then we're operating and moving in this upward spiral here. This really functions more as as a growth spiral. We produce divine good under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. This is good that has eternal value. We we experience life. We develop the capacity for life, stability, joy. Our lives then provide evidence in the angelic conflict. They provide evidence to mankind that God's will is good and perfect. This moves us up through the mechanism of steadfast endurance. We have to persist in the midst of trials because trials... Uh, give us obstacles and we want to give up and we want to quit. But James says steadfast endurance leads to maturity. This is the process we go through. But if we operate on negative volition, the sin nature is in control. We produce sin, human good, morality, legalism. That's the problem we have with the Galatians. And this is temporal death or carnal death. We're divorced experientially from the source of real life. That is, we have cut off from Christ, as we've seen in Galatians 5. And so we are experiencing destruction in our lives as a result of the bad decisions we make from a position of weakness. It produces further emotional weakness and instability in our lives. There will be spiritual regression and a hardened heart. And this deteriorates, eventually culminating in the sin sin unto death. Now, There'll be many different kinds of believers at the judgment seat of Christ. There will be those who are successful in the spiritual life and have spent a maximum amount of time up here in the top cycle. And there will be a large number, I think the vast majority, will be failures in the spiritual life. They never understood it. They tried to exercise a spiritual life in advance on the basis of works and morality and ritual and good deeds. And they're going to be have spent all their time here. So when they get to the judgment seat of Christ... The losers, the failures, are going to lose rewards 
and they're going to experience temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says they will uh, enter heaven. They don't lose their salvation. They will enter heaven yet as through fire. And those who advance will gain rewards, and the, the Scripture says they inherit the kingdom. These will live in the kingdom. These will inherit the kingdom. And we'll get into a further development of that whole subject as we get a little further along in Galatians chapter 5. We'll have to come back and discuss the whole issue of inheritance and kingdom. But Paul discusses this under the metaphor of a race in 1 Corinthians 9.24. And this was very a metaphor that would be easily understood by the Greeks. Uh, running had been a key event in their athletic contests for, for many centuries. We're reminded of why people run a marathon. We just had the Boston Marathon up here, and they run 26 miles. And that originated back in the history of ancient Greece when <clears throat> Pheidippides ran 26 miles from the Battle of Marathon to Athens to announce the victory and also to warn the city because the Persians who were defeated at Marathon would probably get back aboard their ships and sail around the peninsula and then attack Athens from another position. So he ran to announce uh, the victory and the need to defend themselves, and that's come down through history as a marathon, and we still hold marathon races. The Greeks had many different athletic festivals, the one that's most familiar to us is the one that they held on Mount Olympus, and so we still have the, the uh, Olympic events. Uh, incidentally, the stadium at Olympus held 50,000. There was another one at, Mount, at, at Saurus that held 80,000. So people came from large surrounding areas in order to witness the games. There were games uh, at uh, Mount Olympus, but some lesser-known games were the Isthmian Games, which were held every three years down on the Isthmus uh, near Corinth. It was held in honor of the god Poseidon, who was the god of the sea, and he was symbolized by a spruce tree. So the site that they chose was a huge spruce grove that was dedicated to the god, and the prize was a spruce wreath. Each place had a little different wreath to give out in symbolism of the god that the games were dedicated to. There were also the Numian games and the Pythian games. These games consisted of boxing events and wrestling events, various track events like running, javelin throwing, discus throwing, and and later times they brought in the chariot races. Now, if you were an athlete in ancient Greece and you wanted to compete in one of the games, then you had to enter into a very strict uh, disciplinary regimen. It was called in the Greek by the word agonizomai, from which we get our English word agony, and you'll see why. In a few minutes, agonism of mine. This is going to play a role in understanding this passage. Got my letters. Agonid. I'm going to start over. Agonism I. Okay. A G O N I Z O M A I. In order to qualify, first of all, you had to be a freeborn Greek. In the early days, when it was primarily a Greek function, you had to be a freeborn Greek. Not just anyone could participate in the games. You'll notice there's tremendous analogies between this and the spiritual life. You originally had to be a freeborn Greek. Later, you had to also be a Roman citizen. You would enter into a gymnasium, which was an enclosed complex of buildings where everything was provided for the athletes. You would enter that gymnasium for ten months, under strict supervision. First, you went through various elimination trials from the various regions around Greece. And then if you were chosen, you entered the gymnasium where you were completely isolated from friends, family, girlfriends, wives, no conjugal visits, no contact at all with the outside world. You had a very strict diet. Figs, cheese, dried meats, but no wine, no rich food, no cakes, cookies. Ben and Jerry's was just couldn't have any ice cream. Any violation whatsoever, if you were uh, caught sneaking out to meet your uh, wife, or if you uh, somebody snuck a cake in and you were caught with some cookies or Oreos in your room, then you were immediately disqualified. Just one infraction and you were out. Each day there were a series of trumpet calls, about eight different trumpet calls.
activities. When the first trumpet sounded, you woke up and you just sort of limbered up. And then at the second trumpet call, the masseuse would come in and start loosening you up and rub down your muscles. And then you would get out and you would exercise. And you would go through various exercise regimens. And you always exercised naked. didn't matter how cold it was or how hot it was, whether it was raining, whatever the situation, they always exercised and, and competed naked. That was to remove all hindrances. That's why one of the interesting words that Paul uses for the kind of discipline that should characterize the Christian life comes from the Greek word gumnazo, which means to exercise naked. And what Paul is saying is that not that we are to run around in the nude, but that we are to strip out of our lives everything that is a distraction to the spiritual life. Whatever it might be, no matter how good it is, no matter how enjoyable it is, no matter how wonderful it is, if it is to us a distraction to taking in doctrine and advancing spiritually, then we are to strip it out of our lives. They were closely observed during exercise. There were various uh, marshals that were appointed that would watch each one. And if anybody slacked off, if you were doing your push-ups and you started uh, letting your knees drop a little bit or you didn't quite take your chin all the way down to the floor before you went back up, you'd be immediately disqualified and taken out. You had to do everything correctly. Now, with that as backdrop, let's see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, that is, the whole crowd competes, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. There's the exhortation. We are to run as winners, that there is a prize at the end. And we have to run to, in order to win the prize. The prize is inheritance. The prize is our rewards as believers for having run well. Run in such a way that you might, may win. And then he says, And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Now this is an interesting word that we have for self-control in the Greek. It looks like this. Here it's the ver- verb form, enkratuomai. And whenever you have this combination of letters, a G and a K, it's pronounced like an N. So it's E-N-K-R-A-T-E-U-O-M-A-I. Enkratuomai. And this means self-control, self-discipline, restraining oneself, controlling oneself, being focused on a goal. Now this is a passage, a word that's used various times. Interestingly enough, it's used in Galatians 5.23 as one of the fruits of the Spirit. The production of the Spirit is self-control, self-discipline in matters. Uh, Titus 1.8, we're to teach what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-control. That is characteristics to qualify uh, leaders in the local church. Second uh, Peter 1.6 says, In your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. That is a spiritual life. So self-control, self-discipline is a crucial element of the spiritual life. First Corinthians, First uh, Timothy 4, 7 and 8 uses the other word for self-discipline, gymnazo, which says, but having, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline, that is, gymnazo, strip out of your life any distraction that keeps you from the goal of the spiritual life, godliness. That's the word eusebia in the Greek. looks like this. It's always translated godliness in, in the Scriptures. And it's, that's a poor translation, E-U-S-E-B-E-I-A. And if you study the word and its history, it has to do with a person's relationship with God. So it is best to understand godliness as the spiritual life, your relationship with God. I think that godliness is one of those archaic words that just doesn't communicate a lot to people, sort of like holiness. So it brings it a little sharper into focus by translating it to spiritual life. Discipline, that is, strip out of your life every distraction for the purpose of your spiritual life. 
For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but the spiritual life is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, they were to run for a prize. They were, Paul says at the end of verse 25, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, that is, the athletes in the Olympiads. They run to, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. At Olympus, they had a wreath of wild olive leaves. At Pythia, it was a wreath of laurel leaves. In the Nemean games, they had a wreath made from wild celery leaves. In Rhodes, the games offered a wreath of a poplar tree. Now, that doesn't sound like much. It doesn't sound like all you would win. At least now we get a gold medal or a silver medal or a bronze medal. All they got was a wreath made out of a plant, and before long it would wither, turn brown, and fall off. Why would they go through all of this effort to run in a game and to go through all that discipline if that's all they got? Well, that wasn't all they got. When they got home, the athlete was taken out, and there was a huge procession outside the city, and they would go to the wall. Now, the wall in the ancient world was very important because that represented, in a very real way, the protection of the city. And they would cut out a new gate. They would get out the sledgehammers and pound a hole in the wall, and they would enter the gate through that wall, and that symbolized the fact that the protection of the wall was no longer needed for this town because someone, an athlete of such renown and fame, lived in that town or village and would be there to protect them. So they would cut out a new gate in the city wall, and that would be named for this particular athlete. Then the winner was placed on a chariot, and he was led through the city in a victorious procession, huge parade. Everybody would come out and line up both sides of the street and they would throw things at flowers at him and they would praise his name. And then he would come to the center of town and all the city fathers were there and people would give him or the city would give him enormous sums of money. They never again, they and their family, never again had to pay taxes. That'd be worth it all right there, wouldn't it? Never again had to pay taxes. The city poet was hired to write, a song, write several songs to his glory, and everybody would sing these songs. They would go on the top, top ten, and everybody would sing songs to his glory and praise. They would erect a statue with his name on it. If he was a discus blower, then it was a man throwing a discus. If he were a runner, it would be someone running. But a statue was erected to his honor in the town square, and he was then given a seat of honor on the city council, and lifetime uh, passes to the games. So he got uh, season tickets and uh, no taxes. And for a lot of people, that would make it all worthwhile right there. But then his family, he and his family were fed at public expense for the rest of their lives. So it was quite a prize that they received once it was over with. Now, Paul goes on to say that as a result of this, by analogy, he says... Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. We have to understand what the goal is, that there is a goal. The goal is not simply to make sure that we enter into heaven. You see, that's a rather shallow view that unfortunately too many believers have. They just want to get to heaven. But see, the issue is what's going to happen when we hit the judgment seat of Christ. We have to understand this flow chart. We have to understand that there is a race and a course And we have to run the course well. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave. And here we see this very dramatic picture of self-discipline. Buffeting his body. That no matter what, there are many things in life that are good and wonderful and pleasurable but I'm going to physically restrain myself. You almost see this picture of Paul just physically holding himself to the task, to the course. Even though he really wants to do other things, he is going to go so far as to physically buffeting his body, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. That is, he recognized that he could be not losing salvation, but disqualified from inheritance. Now, with that as a background, let's turn back to Galatians chapter 5. He says, You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. That is, it does not have its source 
in God the Father. We saw this phrase, Him who calls you back in chapter 1. And then he quotes a proverb. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. See, this is why doctrine is important. This is why understanding doctrinal controversies is important. Unfortunately, in most churches today, it's not so much an issue of what you believe as to what you feel. How good you feel when you come to church. Let's not get all caught up with doctrine. We're supposed to have unity. And the unity that the Scripture says that we have is first and foremost unity in the body of Christ, positional unity. But when it does talk about it experientially, it's the unity of doctrine, not unity at the expense of doctrine, but unity on the basis of the truth. And so this proverb, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump of dough, reminds us that it doesn't take much. You let somebody come in and begin to teach these little principles of legalism, emphasizing morality over against spirituality, emphasizing do-goodism as the means to gaining favor with God, and before long it begins to permeate everything in the local church. And we can see that historically as legalism, the leaven of legalism, has permeated the lump of Christianity and how it has destroyed the witness of majority of Christians in our culture. Verse 10, Paul says, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view. He's confident that they're going to be straightened out and they're going to come back to grace. He says, but the one who is disturbing you, that is this false teacher in town, you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And that is a reminder that if you continue to listen to him, you will come under divine discipline and you will bear the same judgment that God will mete out to him if you continue in the path of legalism. Remember, God will discipline whomever is His child, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And that is one sign that you are in the family is because of the misery you go through as a, as a believer in rebellion against God. So verses 7 through 10, Paul emphasizes the fact that legalism destroys the spiritual life. Not only will it destroy it, but it will reverse it until you go back to, to the point where your life will not look any different from any unbeliever or any other moralist that's out there. And then verse 11 is a difficult verse for some people to understand. Frankly, a lot of people just can't understand why the Apostle Paul would be sarcastic. We're going to see several places, both here and in James on Wednesday night, where sarcasm is used, sanctified sarcasm in the Scripture, in order to make a point. I always laugh because when you read the learned commentaries, they rarely use the word sarcasm. They use the, the more lofty academic term of irony. But most of us don't understand that. We're more, we understand sarcasm real well. So Paul is using a little sarcasm in verse 11, and he says, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision... See, he was, he was being maligned and misrepresented by these Judaizers. As, well, you really didn't understand, Paul. He agrees with us. He's teaching Judaism. He's teaching circumcision as well and legalism. And you just didn't understand him when he said faith alone in Christ alone. He, he really meant circumcision. After all, he circumcised, didn't he? Or you could just see how they would develop the argument. And Paul says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? If I preach circumcision, why are they always against me? Why are they running me down? Why are they maligning me if I'm really in agreement with them? And then he says, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. And that's his whole point. He says the cross is the stumbling block. That's what people stumble over. They can't understand a free gift. How many times have you witnessed to somebody and they just can't understand how God would just give it to you? Don't I have to do something? Don't I have to earn it, gain God's approval? Don't I have to change my life or change my ways? And unfortunately, too many people teach that you have to repent of your sins or change your life before you can be saved, and that's not true. It's, the cross is a stumbling block because it is so simple. It's so simple to understand that Christ paid it all. And we don't have to do anything, we can't do anything, and we can't add to it. And then Paul says in verse 12, just a wonderful verse that nobody wants to translate correctly, Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Now, doesn't that just sound so smooth? It just sounds so antiseptic. That's not what Paul says, says at all. In fact, 
they've been talking about circumcision, which is the removal of the foreskin from the male phallus. And so what he says here is, I wish that those who are teaching this false doctrine would just castrate themselves. He is very blunt. The more I read the Scriptures, I don't know if that shocks some of you, but the more I read the Scriptures, especially if we ever get the opportunity to go through Samuel, whoever wrote Samuel uses very earthy language, very earthy language that would just shock most Christians today that the Holy Spirit would inspire such, such common, profane language. Yet it's very earthy because people are very earthy and they understand that. And Paul says right here, and the reason he does is he picks up this analogy from the local Phrygian priests in the, uh, in the uh, priest of Sibylle. And these priests would, as part of their initiation rites, uh, they would castrate themselves. I don't know who would want to join such a cult, but apparently that has its appeal to a certain arena of the sin nature and asceticism. But they would castrate themselves so that they would not propagate. They would not have children. And that's the thrust of Paul's sarcasm here is I wish they would, they would castrate themselves not necessarily physically, although he's using that analogy, but he doesn't want them to propagate their false teaching of legalism. That's the reason he is so sarcastic. Would that those who are causing you trouble just go out and and cut it all off. So that's Paul's sanctified sarcasm there as he shows through his attitude and his statement how serious we need to treat legalism because it is destructive to the spiritual life. Well, we'll stop there and we'll pick it up in verse 13 next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of looking at your word to understand the dynamics of grace and that even though everything is by grace, you have still given us the responsibility to grow, to mature, to to run the race. And Father, we pray that we might use the doctrine that we have learned this morning to challenge each one of us, challenge ourselves to, to run this race and run it well that we are to run for the prize because that prize is what glorifies you and brings glory to you in the angelic conflict and in human history. And that is our goal and our desire is to glorify you and not ourselves. So, Father, we pray that we would be challenged to run the race well and to discard that which uh, distracts us, those things in our lives which distract us from running the race well and focusing exclusively on our spiritual life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.